0: From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel, and this is the Times of India podcast. An uncharacteristic hush has fallen over Delhi. Broken only by the shrillness of the ambulance sirens and the fervent cries of its residents, for oxygen cylinders, for remdesivir, for ventilators, and for hospital beds. Dr. Ambarish Satvik, a vascular surgeon at Delhi's Gangaram Hospital, calls the Indian capital the world's most distraught city at present. In this interview, he tells us what to expect over the next few weeks, why one must mask even while indoors, and to vaccinate urgently for the pandemic has left no safe spaces. When we get out of this, he tells us, we will get out of this together. There are no sanctuaries in the world from COVID-19. Listen in. Uh, Dr. Satwik, you work at the Gangaram Hospital and are at the height of the fight against corona in Delhi. The question in everyone's mind is that why is mortality so high in Delhi and in also certain other parts of
1: North India? Well, you know, the mortality statistics will be revealed to us, I think, two to three weeks after, uh, in the wake of all this, because, you know, mortality statistics tend to lag infection statistics by at least two weeks. But what we currently know that in Delhi, the doubling rate for cases is almost five days. So that's tremendous. And uh, what we're seeing is not just uh, a scarcity of resources. Resources have run out. They've been crushed completely. This is perhaps the greatest tragedy to have befallen the city of Delhi in the longest time, and this should send a shudder through the world.
0: We keep hearing about this triple mutation strain B one six one seven. That sounds like some railway seat number. How is it? Is it largely because of that, or are there other factors?
1: Well, it's uh, it's almost entirely because of that, but also I think as is common knowledge now that we kind of declared victory too soon. In uh, in early March, our health minister said that we're in the end game. And, uh, you know, we've been so far behind the curve. So mutation is what viruses do. It's completely commonplace for viruses to mutate. And this is happening on a daily basis. And these mutations sometimes are advantageous to the virus and sometimes they're harmful to the virus. And those mutations which are advantageous to the virus will stay on and will outcompete the more uh, benign forms of the virus and will become the predominant lineage of the virus which is going to drive the the pandemic. And uh, what's important is that with these variants which are conferred with what's called as immune escape, that they're able to evade Antibodies generated by previous infections, and also sometimes antibodies generated by vaccination. Uh, there isn't any country that is actually ecologically sovereign in terms of pandemic related contagion. So if you think that infections are going down in a certain place and uh, there's some semblance of return to normalcy, all that it takes is for one individual infected with the variant. To catch a flight and and go to that place, and there you go, it starts all over again, and which is why you have to track these variants, these mutations, very very carefully, and you need a plan in place. So the the UK, for instance, it set up the the consortium of laboratories which were responsible for sequencing the genome of SARS-CoV-2, and they set up these uh, these labs, uh, the consortium, in April 2020. Now. When do you think we set up the consortium in India? In SACOG, which is the consortium which is responsible for sequencing... This is a consortium of about 10 laboratories all over the country which is responsible for sequencing the genome. This was set up in January 2021. That's how far behind in the curve we are. When do you think it received its first tranche of funding? March 2021. So, uh, yes, I think... um, you know, I, I certainly feel that um, our governing classes have been suffering from a kind of pandemic illiteracy about every every aspect of the pandemic.
0: With the vaccine out of reach for most people, still, is there any way that we can safeguard ourselves against corona?
1: So, what we know about uh, the virus is that it's a respiratory mucosal pathogen, and it's perfectly possible to protect yourselves from uh, infection by the virus. In fact, let me tell you, uh, a whole lot of healthcare workers have been actually actively involved in treating patients with COVID, and a minuscule fraction has been infected. In fact, most of the doctors and the healthcare workers who have been infected by COVID have not been infected while they're attending to their patients. They've been infected when they've let their guard down. And what we know about this, there's overwhelming consensus that this is uh, now perceived as an airborne infection and not droplet infection. The fundamental difference between droplet infection is that droplets are generated when you're sneezing and coughing, and uh, airborne is when the virus actually escapes through your breath and it lingers in a sort of cloud around you. So, uh, the analogy I'd like to offer is one of... uh, of cigarette smoking, so if you 're in a large room and someone 's smoking in one end of the room and you 're in the other end, uh, you can still smell the smoke that 's exactly how the virus is behaving. So if you 're in an environment where you can smell someone 's perfume or someone 's cigarette smoke you 're not safe if one or both of you are not masked. Similarly, if you're walking into a room where someone had been smoking about an hour back, you can still smell the cigarette smoke in that room. And that's, again, how the virus is behaving. It lingers in aerosols in an unventilated room for about an hour or two. So it's potentially possible for you to be infected, which is why it's absolutely mandatory for you to be masked up in indoor spaces, uh, which is why uh, consumption of food A communal sort of consumption of food uh, in a group is potentially the riskiest indoor behavior you can ever partake of. Now, the probability of someone getting infected is much, much lesser when the daily case count in a metropolitan area is about 300. uh, But the probability of someone carrying the virus and someone getting infected is much, much higher when you've got infection rates uh, about five to 6,000 or more in a day. So obviously, your risk-taking behavior has to be titrated with the infection count, the daily COVID cases in a particular metropolitan area. And uh, you might decide to uh, perhaps uh, you know call a couple of friends over when the case count in the city is really, really low. But when infection is raging, it's completely irresponsible for you to mingle
0: now one of the things that you see very often and i'm not even talking about the chin guard but but you know a lot of people will wear the mask around their mouth but not around their noses who is a danger here
1: well it's p- particularly the person who's actually wearing the mask because look i'll just put this into perspective uh, when you're when you're actually on the ascending arm of the peak uh, of a surge in any area you're going into what is Exponential growth. Okay. And uh, perhaps I'll offer a kind of visual analogy of exponential growth. Now, uh, and, and this was an education for me. So I, I, I think for people listening in, uh, this would be helpful. So consider yourself sitting on the top row of a football stadium. Okay. And you're sitting in a way that you're overlooking the bowl of the stadium. And for whatever reason, the stadium is watertight. And You've got water filling in the stadium at the rate of one drop per minute. Okay, but it's exponential growth. So what that means is that the first minute is one drop, two drops in the second minute, four drops in the third minute, eight drops in the fourth minute, sixteen drops in the fifth minute. So it's growing at, at it's doubling, right? So that's precisely what exponential growth is. And in forty-five minutes, you have a situation that uh, water has reached up to the first row of spectators. And 93% of the stadium is still empty, okay, which is 45 minutes, 12.45. And you think you have a lot of time to get out. Three minutes later, uh, you will have water occupying half of the stadium, which is at 12.48. And one minute later, which is 12.49, the stadium will be full. But what's interesting is that, uh, you know, at 12.48, when you think half the stadium is full, you still think you have time to get out, Okay, which is precisely the reason to answer your question why we didn't get time to react this time around. This is a variant which is much, much more contagious, much, much more transmissible than the original ancestral wild SARS-CoV-2. These variants are far more infectious and they're growing exponentially. So anyone who's wearing their masks on their chins should be aware of this, Okay. You think today that 2000 people in Haridwar have tested positive as a consequence of Kumbunela. Okay. But you know where this is going. Think of the football stadium. It's 2000 cases today. Where do you think it'll be 15 days down? You have West Bengal to look at. You know, 24 South Parganas from the time the rallies started happening. Uh, and the run up to their election, there's a 1500 fold increase in the number of cases. You know exactly where UP is going. You know exactly where Uttarakhand is going. You know exactly where West Bengal is going. So, and, and then your, your resources are going to be completely crushed. You know, I work in a tertiary referral hospital in Delhi, one of North India's largest hospitals. We have 675 beds, but pre COVID times we were geared to provide oxygen to hundred or hundred and twenty five critically ill patients, now we are treating five hundred and twenty five patients who are critically ill and suffering from COVID. Where do you think we're going to get oxygen from? You know, our daily requirement now is eleven thousand cubic meters of oxygen a day. We're being supplied about four to six thousand cubic meters. All of Delhi is like that. So you're not going to get time to react. There's no point saying anything excoriating about governments right now. Right now, you have to teach people to just follow masking and adequate masking and be disciplined about it. Whatever it takes, nudge a kind of libertarian paternalism, compulsion, persuasion, whatever it takes. You need behavioral change right now and 100% conversion right now.
0: And what about the whole, the early communication was also about Dogas, Duri, six meters distance. Is that a valid thing any longer now that we know it's airborne?
1: So, I mean, look, uh, as I said, this would be a factor of how much the virus is going around in a community. Okay. When cases are low, it's fine. You know, you can, you can take the odd risk. You can call people over, you know, but, but not when cases are surging guys, Duri will not make any difference. I'd explained. It's like smoking in the same room. Even if you're 12 feet away uh, and the room is poorly ventilated, the virus is going to travel in a cloud to the other end. So it's not helping. You know? and, but I'm, I'm saying this is fundamentally a communications problem. Preservation is a communications problem, and it requires a sort of alliance and a collaboration between multiple disciplines of, of behaviorism and behavioral science and, I don't know, econometric modeling, anthropology, technology, mass media insights, uh, visual communication. You need the smartest people in the country to come together, form an alliance, and find solutions to this, to, find, you know, to, to get the right messages across, and just throw lots of money about, uh, at this. Consider the amount of capital, political, economic um, time, resource, you know, money being spent on political advertising. We need to, you know, we need to have messages that will teach kids how to be disciplined about masking and how not to transmit um, uh, infections because, you know, kids under the age of 15 uh, form a third of this country in terms of demographics about 30 to 33% of the population of India is under 15. And we've basically kept all of them locked up through the past year. So they are fundamentally virgin soil. They're naive to the virus, and which is why you're seeing a lot of infections in kids these days. So you need messages that will teach kids how to be disciplined. You need messaging that will teach uh, you know, teenagers and, and, y- and young adults and adolescents and and also, you know, the huddled masses and, and, you know, the smart people and everybody. There is a lot of vaccine hesitancy among people. I mean, we get,
0: you know, there are WhatsApp groups doing the round that it causes impotency among men, that it changes people's DNA, that it causes fever and it can, in fact, give you corona. So there is, people are worried about the vaccine.
1: So, uh, look, there's one thing that we know about vaccines, The vaccines work. They're, They're meant to be systemic vaccines. They're not, which means that they will prevent the harmful effects of the disease. They will not give you, I mean, even if you do get infected, the likelihood of you ending up with severe COVID or requiring hospitalization or dying of COVID are really, really remote. That's certain that's the only certain thing about vaccines. So uh, I think everybody who has an opportunity to get vaccinated should get vaccinated. They definitely take the sting out of the disease. The trouble is to have a mass vaccination program which is like a blitz, because we need, as I had explained, you know, um, a third of India is under 15. So if we start vaccinating the young, there's no chance that we're going to end up with uh, vaccine-induced herd immunity. Because this is a young country, the average kind of age of the Indian is about 28. So, about 60% of India was born post liberalization. So, we are a young nation. We need vaccination to happen as a blitz, but that I don't see that happening.
0: You know, at a time when it's really difficult to get an RT PCR test done, obviously, there's enormous load on the system. Will an antigen test suffice?
1: Antigen tests have, a, a, you know, a different purpose. So there's a test that will diagnose an infection, which is the RT-PCR, which is the gold standard test, and then there's a test which will diagnose infectiousness, all right, which is the potential of an individual to infect others. So rapid antigen tests are not particularly sensitive in diagnosing infections. They're about, I'd say, under 40% sensitive, or even less. But they're pretty good in diagnosing infectiousness, which means that if the viral load in the individual who's being tested at that time is high enough to be a potential source of contagion to others, that usually will be picked up by a rapid antigen test. And now you've got very cheap paper tests, you know, which are rapid antigen tests, which can, which are actually available in the U.S. and under a couple of dollars, uh, which can be deployed if you wish to open up. Well that means is that let's say restaurants are opening up or schools are opening up. that's how they're being I mean at least that's how uh, you know North America is planning to deploy them. So you start uh, testing individuals. this is a home based test. You basically kind of spit into it, or it's a self-administered test that you take every morning. you wake up, it's like about a dollar that it costs or a little more than that. and uh, uh, it's like a pregnancy test. So you kind of spit into it, and if it is positive, you basically stay at home. If it's negative, you show up at work. That's going to increase confidence as you start opening up again, particularly as you're getting out of a raging surge, and uh, instill uh, confidence in the opening up process. But I think you know it's it's perfectly fine to have such tests on a thrice a week basis or even a daily basis in the Western world. But perhaps for our volumes and for our areas, I don't think it's uh, it's conceivable to use that as a test of infectiousness. What we're currently using that for is a kind of screening test, which means that if someone is positive, they're definitely positive, but if they're negative, you need to, and there's suspicion of infection, uh, then you, you confirm that with an RT-PCR. But fundamentally, the rapid antigen test is a test of infectiousness rather than a test of infection.
0: If someone is, is infected at home, for instance, and given how contagious this virus is, uh, what should, I mean, you know, there is a thing that, you know, you isolate at home, but what about the rest of the family? What should they do
1: to pick them? So I think if there's one message that I'd like to convey to everyone, a person is perhaps the most infectious to others one day before they develop symptoms. right? so One day before he or she will develop symptoms, they're most infectious to others because they're shedding the virus and nobody knows around them that they're shedding the virus. If someone's coughing or sneezing or sniffling or is febrile, you would automatically stay away from them or go in their presence with a mask on. But one day before they develop these symptoms, they're actually shedding the virus and you don't know they're shedding the virus. So they're most infectious to others. And that's the reason for the great success of SARS-CoV-2 because most infections happen when you are in the presence of someone who's not symptomatic. And the trouble is that it's not that they're not symptomatic, it is that they're pre-symptomatic. So they're shedding the virus. You don't know they have the disease, but they've given it to you already, which is why it's important to understand the dynamics of transmission, particularly indoor transmission, and be masked at all times, particularly if the daily case count in your city or your area is high. So,
0: even if you're at home and, and you say, supposing you have your, your staff coming into work at home, is when you should still be wearing masks?
1: Uh, look, if someone who's working uh, for you is wearing a mask and they're in the same room as you, chances of transmission are very low. But perhaps uh, both individuals wearing a mask. In a poorly ventilated room would make it very difficult for the virus to be transmitted, even if one of them is infected.
0: My final question to you, uh, Dr. Satwik, is that what is this whole year has
1: what is it kind of taught you? Look, I think um, this particular surge in Delhi is a cataclysm, and what you're seeing is a complete collapse of the value of human life. Delhi is perhaps the most kind of irredeemably despairing city in the world right now. And this had been kind of prophesied and we missed it completely. So I think what it has taught me is that uh, the pandemic is not over till it's over everywhere. Y- you have to understand that it's entirely possible, as I said, that there isn't a truly sovereign nation that is sovereign ecologically when it comes to pandemics. So, um, we'll all get out of it together i don't think there are sanctuaries anywhere in the world we're hearing of israel opening up and and a return to normalcy but uh we'll have to watch that very very carefully all it takes as i said is one individual with a virus sitting on a plane showing up in an area and there you go all over all over again this episode was produced by joshua thomas
0: for any news tips reach us at 2 at timesinternet.in